Hi, everyone. Before we get into today's episode, we are thrilled to have Amboss as our sponsor. Take a listen to how James, a medicine resident, uses Amboss. I didn't know that Maha was a feature of hypertensive emergency. Like, you know, everyone uh. thinks about the typical um, organ dysfunction. So the, this patient ended up having, you know, Maha. So I think that like little bit of nuance I picked up really quickly from accessing Amboss, like when I was doing the admission. The other thing is it's organized very intuitively. You know, when you go to an up-to-date website, there might be some organization like, you know, organized into clinical features or diagnostics. The way Amboss is, is that that information is not open unless you click on it. You know, all resources have their role, but I think it was really helpful in providing me with the information at a level that, you know, allowed me to advance that patient's care without like getting so bogged down into it. You can try Amboss for free by signing up on amboss.com. Also, this episode will count for CME credit with the American College of Physicians. So click on the link in the show notes, answer three questions and get CME credit. And with that, on to the episode. Welcome to Gray Matters, where we unpack how medical management is rarely black or white. And we go on deep dives along the way. I'm Jason Freed, a hematologist at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. And I'm Allie Trainer, a pulmonary and critical care fellow at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center and Mass General Hospital. And today we're also joined by our friend and colleague, Nick Villano. Hi, I'm Nick Villano, and I'm a hospitalist at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. So Nick, I understand you have a case that's going to bring us back into the gray zone? Yeah, I do, Jason. And I'm pretty excited to talk about this case. It's about AFib and some other common issues that come up all the time for us. And it actually had me go down five separate deep dives. So get ready for a lot of tangents here. Hmm. All right, let's hear it. So this happened when I was on the inpatient medicine consult service. At 3 p.m. on a Sunday, we were consulted by general surgery. The patient was a 72-year-old woman. She had a history of GERD, diabetes, and poorly controlled hypertension. And she was two days post-op from an open cholecystectomy and a washout for perforated cholecystitis and peritonitis. So at this point, she was recovering and on antibiotics, but the primary surgery team noticed new atrial fibrillation on telemetry. And that's why they called us, the medicine consult team. Oh gosh, post-op AFib. I feel like we're about to be squinting at tele strips to see if it's really there. Ugh, trust me, I know. The surgery team had already done their squinting and they called us in for backup. And of course, by the time we got there, she was already back in sinus rhythm. <laughs> Nicely done, Nick. Another therapeutic consult. But in all seriousness, though, what were you able to capture? Was there a 12-lead or was it just on the telemetry that you had? Yeah, yeah. See, that, that's where the first challenge came in. It was only about two or three runs of about 10 to 15 seconds on telemetry that had alarm for AFib. But when I saw it, it was just hard to make out anything. Very erratic baseline. I mean, if you told me she was just brushing her teeth, I would have believed you. Constant struggle with AFib. And, you know, the challenge is that once AFib is on the chart, it almost never comes off and it has so many implications for the patient. I know. So I'm sitting there wondering what to say to the resident on consults with me, not to mention the primary surgical team still waiting for an answer. I mean, was this AFib? How clinically important is something that brief? So for our first deep dive, I really wanted to explore how do you diagnose new atrial fibrillation? What can the duration of the fib actually tell you? So I sat down with Dr. Pooja Jagadish to talk about some of the takeaways from a recent article of hers on postoperative atrial fibrillation. The definition of clinical atrial fibrillation to diagnose is either 30 seconds on telemetry or some sort of wearable like an Apple Watch. 
or equivalent device like EMA Cardia, or a full 12-lead EKG. If you've got episodes that are shorter than this, they don't meet criteria for clinical atrial fibrillation. Okay, so just to make sure I got this, it sounds like from Dr. Jagadish, you technically need 30 seconds on tele for the diagnosis. Right, and you only need 30 seconds of AFib to be AFib, but is like 31 seconds of AFib the same as 31 days of AFib? Right, and does only 29 seconds of AFib make you feel better? Yeah, so I guess, is AFib really that binary? Or does the frequency and or duration of AFib episodes, does that tell us something about the risk for stroke? So from the little data that we have, the number of AFib episodes in patient is probably not as relevant as the longest episode. For example, five 30-second episodes would not be as significant to us as a single four or six-hour episode. And that, that's typically how I, uh, how I think about it. And so I, the simplest thing and what I lean toward most would, would just be the longest episode someone has over sheer number of episodes. That was Dr. Jason Matos, another one of our cardiology experts. So Dr. Matos says there actually is some good data that correlates a patient's longest episode of atrial fibrillation to that patient's stroke risk. And that's the ASSERT trial. As a caveat, the study is looking at patients with chronic AFib in the outpatient setting, but it did follow these patients for two and a half years, and it found that patients with longer episodes of atrial fibrillation on cardiac monitor actually had a higher risk of stroke. So you're saying independent of Chad's tube ask, how long you're in AFib impacts your stroke risk? Yeah. So the main takeaway from this trial is that stroke risk increased with increasing duration of the longest AFib episode. Patients whose longest episode of AFib was less than six minutes had about a 0.6% yearly incidence of stroke or systemic embolism. Those with any episodes greater than six minutes, they had a 1.7% yearly incidence of stroke or systemic embolism. And in a subgroup analysis, patients with any single episode of fibrillation 18 hours or longer had a stroke or systemic embolism incidence of nearly 5% per year. Dang. I mean, you know me, I love numbers, but those numbers are astonishing to me. Looking at those three groups, there's almost a tenfold difference in stroke risk between the lowest risk group which was less than six minutes, and the highest risk group, which was greater than 18 hours. Yeah, and then there's your patient, and she only had 10 to 15 seconds of possible AFib. So that doesn't even meet the ESC definition of FIB. So we're even more in the gray. Yeah, that's right. The evening we were consulted, we just saw some very brief episodes of possible FIB buried in artifact. But the next morning, we sat down to check her telly, and lo and behold, we see two hours of clear AFib on monitor. All right, so at least from this part, we're out of the gray zone. Yeah, what can I say? Her heart finally showed its cards. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's a good joke. But I, I feel like making the diagnosis of new onset atrial fibrillation raises more questions for me. Because she had AFib in the setting of a recent major surgery and an infection. So is she really at ongoing risk for atrial fibrillation and stroke when she gets better and she doesn't have those things anymore? Yeah, I'll be honest. I always thought of the garden variety AFib that happens in the community as being in its own bucket, basically like a pre-existing AFib. And I've lumped atrial fibrillation after surgery or during acute illness into a separate bucket, kind of like sick AFib. I don't think I've ever used the term sick AFib before, but I like it. I feel like I have similar mental categories, like these people who got AFib while they were sick in the hospital. So just to be clear, we're talking about AFib after non-cardiac surgery. 
AFib after cardiac surgery is super common. It's usually self-limited and it's treated very differently. So we won't be getting into that here. But so for our second deep dive, I really did want to put that sick AFib under a microscope. Does sick AFib put you at risk for ongoing fibrillation and stroke? The same way we think of pre-existing AFib in the community? I mean, really, does my patient really have AFib? Or is this like AFib with a big asterisk? So is post-op AFib the same as paroxysmal AFib? I tend to think that post-op AFib is really the same as paroxysmal AFib. It's an, it, there's an inciting event of the surgery that makes somebody hyperadrenergic and inflamed and sick. I don't know that that's any different than somebody who gets pneumonia or a UTI or has alcohol withdrawal. And so it says to me that anything that raises catecholamines that causes AFib, there is something different about your, your atria that makes you more likely to have these irregular heartbeats. That was Dr. Greg Katz, another one of our cardiology experts. So I found this really surprising, and it made me question if I even should be thinking of sick AFib patients any differently. And our discussants referred me to multiple studies that actually show that if you were diagnosed with AFib during a hospitalization for sepsis or non-cardiac surgery, your future risk of AFib and stroke really is higher than that of the general population without AFib. Okay, but like that's compared to the general population. I feel like the more important question is, how does the stroke risk for someone who gets AFib in the hospital compared to someone who has pre-existing AFib, like, like regular old community AFib. So this was a big moment for me. Although it's not identical, the stroke risk for someone with sick AFib is really similar to that of someone with pre-existing AFib. Okay, in the short course of this episode, Nick, you created a new term that I liked, sick AFib, but now you're telling me it doesn't even really matter if it's sick AFib or not. We should just think about it as AFib. AFib and sepsis or non-cardiac surgery carries similar risk of stroke and similar risk of more atrial fibrillation. Yeah, I'm not going to be too heartbroken if that sick AFib thing doesn't catch on. And that begs the next natural question here, which is, does anticoagulation work as well in these patients compared to pre-existing or community atrial fibrillation, or, you know, as we sometimes call it, AF? So the most cited and I think useful retrospective study that that looks at this is from a Danish group, a, a large nationwide database that compared atrial fibrillation patients, those that developed it from post-operative non-cardiac surgery, and those who just have AF in the community. They looked at thromboembolism rates between both of those groups of atrial fibrillation patients, and they looked at the relative risk reduction of anticoagulation use for thromboembolism in both these groups of patients. And what they found is things are pretty similar. If you anticoagulate a post-operative non-cardiac surgery AFib patient and you anticoagulate a patient, a community-dwelling non-valvular AF patient, your relative risk of thromboembolism reduction is similar in both those two groups. So I think this is the best data we have right now, albeit retrospective, that suggests we should be treating uh, the post-operative non-cardiac surgery population similar to community-dwelling non-valvular atrial fibrillation patients. So both data and guidelines to consider anticoagulation in patients who develop AFib after non-cardiac surgery. But what about AFib that I see develop most often in the ICU, which is when someone has sepsis? You know, Does being on a blood thinner actually help decrease the stroke risk the same way as other atrial fibrillation populations? Unfortunately, the data for sepsis is not as nowhere near as robust. 
and sometimes in patients with sepsis, anticoagulation is is not is tricky. Uh, the the best we can do is surmise that AFib developing after non-cardiac surgery is not from direct cardiac manipulation, so it must be some sort of adrenergic surge. And maybe something similar is happening in the sepsis population. So the best we can do is take this really good, I think, or at least very good non-cardiac surgery data and do our best to apply it to the sepsis population, albeit with some caveats, you know, some exceptions, obviously, in particular cases. Since there's a lack of robust data in the post-sepsis population, we pressed Dr. Matos and really asked him, how does he make decisions regarding anticoagulation in these patients? And... I always go with the same triangulation of chad Stuvascor, burden of atrial fibrillation, is there a history of a prior stroke, and what's the bleeding risk? And we do our best to come up with the best, the right decision for that patient, right, in quotation marks. But if we return to your patient, right, she was post-abdominal surgery, so we do have some data that favors anticoagulation. Right, right. She had had peritonitis from a perforated gallbladder, but was clinically doing much better after a cholecystectomy, a washout, and being on antibiotics. We had clear postoperative atrial fibrillation diagnosed on a 12-lead EKG, and she had had a two-hour-long episode of fibrillation. And since we now know that her long-term risk of recurrent fib and stroke is significant, the question was now on the risks and benefits of anticoagulation. Mm, bleeding versus clotting, always straightforward. <laughs> oh, nothing could be simpler. So I was going through my typical risk-benefit considerations for anticoagulation, and I started thinking, hold on, is her risk of stroke during this hospitalization like really unusually high? I mean, she's having a lot of long episodes of AFib. She had recent sepsis and surgery. Her heart must be pretty irritated. I mean, should I be jumping on anticoagulation immediately? Oh, yeah, that's a good thought. Like, does this milieu of inflammation and the increased atrial fibrillation burden mean we're like in a real danger zone when it comes to stroke? right now? Yeah, so basically that was exactly my springboard into another rabbit hole, and I found something pretty surprising down there. Basically, if you have new onset AFib, whether it's in the setting of sepsis or non-cardiac surgery, your risk of stroke during that hospitalization is higher, but your risk of bleeding is also higher. Yeah, we think about this a lot in the ICU, and most of the time we don't anticoagulate right away for new onset AF in the context of sepsis or critical illness because there have been several retrospective studies showing that stroke risk in the acute setting isn't changed by being on anticoagulation, and it, it might just really put you at higher bleeding risk. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we all worry about strokes, but it makes sense for sepsis to resolve before we start thinking about blood thinners. Okay, what about after surgery? How did her recent surgery factor into your decision-making around anticoagulation? That's pretty much exactly what we were wondering. I mean, at this point, we hadn't made a final decision around anticoagulation yet. I did feel more comfortable with how to think about her risk of stroke, but I was still really not sure about how to think about her bleeding risk after surgery. That's why for our third deep dive, I wanted to ask, when is it safe postoperatively to start anticoagulation? And how is that decision even really made? Just a quick word from our sponsor. We all want to eat healthier, but let's be honest, between our busy schedule and the endless prep and cleanup, it feels kind of out of our reach. You know, we often are aiming for better nutrition, but end up compromising for quick fixes that are anything but healthy. Now, imagine a different scenario. Picture a day where you're coming home to gourmet, nutritious meals that are ready in just two minutes. With Factors, that is possible. Factors delivers delicious, chef-crafted, dietitian-approved meals right to your door 
ready to heat in just two minutes, giving you over 35 weekly options to choose from, from calorie smart to protein plus to keto. And don't forget, they have 60 plus add-ons for an extra boost from breakfast to midday bites. So you're not spending all your time and money in the hospital cafeteria. So no prep, no mess, just real mouth-watering meals tailored to fit your schedule and dietary needs. With fact, you're not just saving time, but you're elevating your meal game without the hassle of cooking. Head to factormeals.com slash coriam50. Use the code coriam50 to get 50% off. That's the code coriam50 at factormeals.com slash coriam50. Yeah, I'll be honest. I don't always understand what goes into their decision. I usually just page surgery and ask, what do you want to do? Yeah, same here. Luckily, this time my page was answered by Dr. Patrick Georgioff, an acute care surgeon and host of the Behind the Knife podcast. So to really answer your question, the answer is usually within 4 to 12 hours after surgery. Any type of true risk of major bleeding should be taken care of based on uh, sound surgical principles. And after that, you're really worried about uh, what we you know, refer to kind of in a broader context as medical bleeding. Okay, so from the technical surgical aspect of things, we have to wait at least 4 to 12 hours before starting blood thinners. But depending on the location of the surgery, it might be longer. So there's a certain uh, set of patients that you really want to um, think about them as being high risk. And that's uh, uh, trauma patients uh, who may still have injuries afterwards, like maybe they have a liver laceration and that can instill bleed, um, or other uh, patients that have surgery on their brain, perhaps spinal cord or their heart. Again, that's because the consequences are devastating if they should bleed and really squish those organs. You squish the brain, it's no good. You squish the spinal cord, it's no good. You squish the heart, that's no good. So then when we talk about bigger kind of categories of patients, patient who gets a thoracic procedure, maybe uh, um, a wedge resection on their lung, or a patient who has an open hemicolectomy. So kind of bigger surgeries, but that fall into the general surgery category. Well, those folks usually we're talking about within two, three, four days, um, you've seen that they're doing well. And at that point you say, okay, um, we, let's, let's get that, that uh, eloquence back on. It's interesting to get inside the surgeon's head since pretty much everything in there is a gray area for me. And I think one of the, the biggest things that we need to hammer home is that, you know, all of everything about anticoagulation, restarting anticoagulation postoperatively is highly surgeon specific. It's patient specific. It's case specific. It's institution specific. Yeah. You know, every situation is different, but conveniently, the American College of Chess Physicians gave us somewhere to start. Chess released its 2022 guidelines on perioperative anticoagulation management while we were working on this episode. Oh, yeah. I'm glad you brought that up. Can you walk us through the relevant part of the guidelines? Definitely. So when it comes to starting anticoagulation postoperatively, they break it up by surgical bleeding risk. For low to moderate bleeding risk surgery, you can consider resuming DOACs as soon as post-op day one. And for higher bleeding risk surgery, it's best to wait until at least post-op day two or three. What about warfarin? Yeah. So CHESS recommends that you start within 24 hours of surgery since it'll take a few days before the person even reaches therapeutic levels. Okay, so to summarize, there's a few factors that go into when you can start or resume anticoagulation post-op. This includes site of surgery, how invasive it was, which anticoagulant you'll be using, if it was high or low risk procedure. And although it wasn't specifically mentioned in the guidelines, it's probably best practice to always work collaboratively with the surgical team because there is some nuance here. Yeah, I find these guidelines extremely helpful in these conversations. So basically what I do is I, I present the surgeon with the range from the guidelines and also about whether the patient's at a higher stroke risk or a higher clotting risk. And then from them, I seek to find out, like, what's their sense of the bleeding risk specific to the individual surgery and how it went? 
Right, definitely. I mean, these questions are so case-specific, but don't get me wrong, it is nice to have some guidance to go off. Yeah, I mean, even a loose guideline is better than solid gray. But going back to your case, I'm guessing the surgery team wouldn't have a problem with anticoagulation. She's doing better. She's at least two days out from the OR. Yeah, that's right. The decision was essentially up to us. We had a 72-year-old woman with newly discovered AFib after an infection and a surgery that the chest guidelines consider high risk for bleeding. And by now, she's out of the ICU and doing better. Surgery has no issues with starting a blood thinner. Okay, so you've got the okay from surgery to start anticoagulation. So what do you do next? Well, we calculated her CHADS VAS to be 4, which suggests about a 4.8% yearly stroke risk. Her HAS blood was 2, suggesting a 4.1% yearly bleeding risk. So taking into account her long episodes of AFib, our new knowledge that she is at risk for recurrent AFib and stroke, you know, I I felt she'd probably benefit from anticoagulation. So what happened? So she was pretty hesitant about being on a blood thinner. She had a loved one who had a pretty serious bleed on a blood thinner. She also said that those two hours that she was in AFib, she was just really stressed from this phone call she had gotten from her son. She said she really wanted to try to just avoid stressful situations like that in the future. And, you know, on top of all that, pretty understandably, she was tired. She was overwhelmed. And she really didn't want to take another pill. I, I mean, I get where she's coming from, but with the duration of AFib, her Chad's Vasca 4, stroke risk isn't nothing. So, I mean, what do you do now? Yeah, no, no, I, that's what I was thinking. So I spoke with cardiology and they recommended that we set her up with outpatient cardiology follow-up and do some long-term monitoring to look for atrial fibrillation. And that seems to make sense. I mean, remember, some patients don't have recurrent AFib after surgery or sepsis, and this could help us know if she's one of those people. So I explained the plan and the need for follow-up with her, but that also led me to another question. I mean, for the next deep dive, I just want to ask... How do we choose the best cardiac monitor for a patient like this? And how is that monitoring data even really used for atrial fibrillation? Okay, I'm so glad we're talking about this. Can we please review the types of monitors? I'm honestly not sure which one I should be reaching for for newly found AFib on hospital discharge. Oh, same here. It definitely took me a refresher to get this all down again. But I think it's helpful that when you think of these monitors to ask yourself, do you want it to record everything, like a continuous cardiac monitor? Or do you only want to record something specific, like an event monitor? And then you ask yourself, how long do you want to monitor the patient? Yeah, the way I think about it is like in generations of technology. So there's the old-fashioned Holter monitor, where it records every single thing for 24 to 48 hours. But those didn't have enough memory to record anything longer than that. Yeah, so that sounds like it might not be useful in this situation because if she has paroxysmal AFib, it might not happen in those 24 to 48 hours. Right, right. A Holter monitor might be more useful if you're in AFib most of the time and you want to know how good your heart rate control is, for example. So the next technology is the event monitor, aka the loop recorder. It's still limited by memory, but the way it gets around the problem is this. It's recording everything, but then if there's no event, it loops over it like you're recording over some old cassette. But then if you hit the button because you're feeling palpitations, it saves like a minute of that event and the 30 seconds beforehand and doesn't record over it. And also the more modern ones have an internal system that can recognize arrhythmias. So it saves those events too, even if you don't hit the button. So in this way, you can monitor for 30 days without needing 30 days of memory. Okay, so the loop recorder or event monitor could tell you how many times you went into AFib, but it's really not going to tell you anything about the length of time you're in AFib. Right, exactly. 
So the third option is sort of like combining the benefits of the Holter and event monitors, and that's the patch monitor. It lets you record everything that happens for two weeks, and it also saves events triggered by the patient or that the device detects. So if you go into AFib during those two weeks, you'll note the total burden of atrial fibrillation, the episode durations, the heart rates. So that's exactly what my patient went home with, a 14-day patch monitor. Okay, thanks so much for going over that. So your patient didn't want to be on a blood thinner. We diagnosed her with AFib in the hospital. How then is gathering more data with the monitor going to help us? So if you can imagine a patient that's on a medicine service that develops 15 minutes of atrial fibrillation, you're like, I, I don't know. I have a chance to vascular up two or three, the guidelines say to anticoagulate. And you, you put a, a, a heart monitor, a two-week or four-week continuous heart monitor on, and then they have a 19-hour run of atrial fibrillation, whether it be symptomatic or not. I think then you really have some ammunition there with the patient uh, to say, you know, I, I think we really should be, um, though the warning shot was in the hospital, I think we're at the point now where the, the, the scales are tipping toward an anticoagulation. So cardiac monitoring will give us more data on the burden and seeing a longer duration and multiple other runs makes us think she really would benefit from anticoagulation and we should recommend that this patient start anticoagulation. Yeah, and say you sent the patient home with a patch monitor and you don't see any arrhythmia in that two-week span. Like, are you now comfortable with a patient not being on anticoagulation? Like, have we undiagnosed AFib? Is a two-week patch enough to do that? That being said, if you have someone with a two-week monitor uh, that shows none or zero, I still think the jury's out. And sometimes we repeat two-week monitors. We'll, we'll repeat in another six months. Yeah. I mean, maybe she didn't have that catecholamine surge or really stressful phone call in that two-week span to capture her AFib. So for patients that you're concerned about, it makes sense to have longer monitoring periods. And if you're 42 years old, two to four weeks of atrial fibrillation monitoring, or even if you're 65 years old, two to four weeks of atrial fibrillation monitoring is just not sensitive enough. Um, and we don't know what that cutoff is, but in, in certain patients where the, the, we feel like the risk is high enough, we we'll implant a loop recorder for say one year at least and see if any uh, subclinical atrial fibrillation arises, which would prompt anticoagulation. Yeah, I wonder whether wearable technology like iWatches might fit into a niche here because basically it can be a lifetime of monitoring. In the world of Apple Watches and smart tools that patients can use at home, there's a lot that patients can do without you, the physician. So let's talk about the Apple Watch study, for example. That was done on about 420,000 individuals, 0.5% received an irregular pulse notification, and that correlated to 34% of monitored participants having a diagnosis of atrial fibrillation. This is fascinating, but there's currently no way to send your patient home with an Apple Watch. Yes, yeah, sadly, no. <laughs> but just wrapping up here, I think the takeaway is that when we give patients a shorter-term cardiac monitor like a patch, we need to be realistic about what to expect from that. You know, a, a two- to four-week monitor can help support a decision to anticoagulate if you see AFib. But if you don't see AFib, there's still so much uncertainty there. So to bring it back to your patient, Nick, she didn't want to be on a blood thinner and she was discharged with a patch monitor. So what actually happened? Like, what did the patch end up showing? Did she have AFib? Did she go on a blood thinner? So unfortunately, it's not the ending I hoped for. She missed the post-discharge cardiology appointment. 
I even called the patch tech and he said that she never even wore the patch. So we don't even have that data. Mm, that's so tough. You know, it, it sounds like you you really did try to set things up well for her on discharge, but there's so many reasons why she might have been lost to follow up. Yeah, I'm curious, Nick, what were you thinking about at this point? Like seeing that she didn't get the patch that you arranged for? Well, I don't know. I couldn't help but think, was there something that I could have done differently or communicated better? Something to help her understand the importance of following through with the plan? I mean, should I have tried harder to convince her to take the blood thinner from the start? I mean, I thought we had a great conversation about it. Yeah, Nick, it's so hard. I, I wouldn't be so hard on yourself because I think we, we all do our best to educate patients, but sometimes what we say might not be what the patient hears. And that's what led me to the final deep dive to examine the best practices for communicating something complicated like atrial fibrillation and anticoagulation with our patients. I mean, I feel like one of the first questions I have is like, how much should we really expect our patients to understand of this? Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, she was sick and she was very tired of being sick. We walked in the room and when we mentioned her heart, I could tell she was already overwhelmed. You can't just tell somebody something once and then expect them to remember it. How much do you remember about what you had for breakfast today? Probably not that much. And so if you're stressed out and you're not feeling well and you're recovering from surgery and you have anesthesia in your system and you're in a weird setting and you're sleep deprived, like, are you going to really remember what your doctor said about this irregular heartbeat that maybe you heard about on a commercial during a, like a, a football game? Probably not. You know, you can do all this cerebral work on rounds talking about the duration of AFib, the risk of stroke, the pros and cons of anticoagulation. I feel like it's all in vain if the patient doesn't understand it. Totally. And with AFib, I think it's really two things that are difficult to explain here. One, weighing the risks and benefits of blood thinners. And two, what even is AFib? I try to be calm with patients when I explain it to them. And I phrase it you know, your adrenaline levels went up related to the surgery and there's inflammation and there's all this stuff going on in your body. And as a consequence of that, your ticklish heart went into this irregular heartbeat. And it's a super common irregular heartbeat. And it's really something that's very well able to be managed with medical treatments. I love that ticklish heart analogy and I'm definitely stealing that. I don't view the conversation as the be-all end-all of our discussion. And it's different if you're the consultant and all you're going to do is see this patient in the hospital once, maybe you need to communicate a little bit more about the gravity of the situation and about the lifelong importance of monitoring and potential blood thinners and all of that stuff. I like that, you know, focusing more on communicating the gravity of the situation so that the patient can also take ownership of the long-term attention that this condition really needs. And so if somebody comes in with a score of four, I tell them, you have about a 4% annual risk of stroke. And we lower that considerably by putting you on blood thinners. We don't make it zero, but we lower it quite a bit. And you know, talking with people about what those actual numbers are over the course of a year sometimes helps them to have a sense of like, do I want to take this blood thinner or not? But you know, sometimes I think that when you only talk about a one-year risk, you actually undersell how important it is. And you also miss the asymmetric risk profile of stroke. And what I mean by asymmetric risk profile is if I put you on a blood thinner, maybe it's a little bit annoying to take. Maybe you bruise a little bit more easily. It's possible you even have some minor GI bleeds. It's possible you have a major bleed. But if I don't put you on a blood thinner, you have a risk of stroke that is modifiable, but we're not modifying it. 
And strokes are really, really bad, or at least they can be really, really bad. And so when I say asymmetric risk profile, I mean the downside of having a stroke because we didn't put you on a blood thinner has potential to be so much more catastrophic than the downside of having of being on a blood thinner. And it's not to say that some patients don't have life-threatening bleeds because they do. But with direct oral anticoagulants, number one, the risk of intracranial bleeding is really, really low. And that's the bleeding that you'd worry most about. Okay. So 4% chance that I have a stroke this year. I mean, is that a lot? You know, as a physician, I'm having trouble deciding how should I advise the patient based on that number? Is it even fair to ask a patient to understand all of that complex physiology and risk modeling that goes into that decision? Ali, I totally agree. Like, I think, I think to a certain extent, many patients walk away instead with, if I don't take this medicine, I will have a stroke. But if I do take this medicine, I won't have a stroke. And it's obviously not that binary. But to a certain extent, we benefit from them having a misunderstanding because that's the understanding they need conceptually to do the thing that's overall in aggregate right for them. You wonder, like, if they learned that actually it's a 4% per year risk and we're only reducing the risk by about two-thirds with blood thinners, so just to do the math, like, 4% annual risk of stroke becomes about 1.5%, so the absolute risk reduction is 2.5%, so the number needed to treat is 40. So you tell them, 40 people like you have to take this medicine for an entire year to save one from stroke. And then to make it even more complicated, you know, the number needed to harm is like 100. Like Jason, please, for the love of God, stop with the numbers. You're, you have made your point. My head is spinning. Okay, fair. But like, I think the point is that like, if you actually tried to help people really, truly understand what the numbers meant, it, it's almost too much. It's almost counterproductive. Yeah. And there's so much that even we don't really know. I mean, what does her cumulative risk look like over five years, 10 years? We really don't have great ways of estimating that. What if this is the patient that does have a catastrophic intracranial bleed? I mean, it's it's super complicated, right? Because a lot of people like to quote the one-year risk, but as I explain to patients in the office, every one year, you're getting older and your stroke risk is going up. So each year we're doing the calculus, it's a little... it's a, Unless you have a major bleeding event, in, the, the, in that interim time, you're embolic stroke risk, your risk benefit for anticoagulation is favoring the anticoagulation as time, as time accumulates and as a patient ages. So it, it, it's, a, it's a tricky decision. Yeah. I mean, I've actually had patients who really appreciate being looped in. They want to hear the nuance of their percent risk of stroke. They want to know this comes from solid studies. And others give me a look that says, you're the doctor. Why the heck are you asking me? But it's hard to know what kind of person you're talking to. I mean, how do you two gauge how much a patient wants to hear? Yeah, I like to kind of borrow from the spikes mnemonic and just ask the patient, how much do you want to know? Yeah, I think I do something similar. Like I, I usually say, tell me what you know. And from that, I get a sense from how in-depth they go. I get a guess at their health literacy, their interaction with the health system, that sort of thing. Yeah, I think it, it sounds like we're starting with a similar idea of sort of a check-in. You know, is this someone who wants all the details or is it someone who just wants the clinician to tell them what to do? And I also like pausing and checking throughout and asking like, tell me your thoughts on that. Like sometimes I even say the words pause. Like I'm going to pause here and see what questions you have. Even in the middle of an explanation, rather than finishing the whole explanation, because then it helps me titrate the amount of information I give. I like that. And you know, in hindsight, I really can't remember if I did a check-in with her. If I were to have another chance of talking to her, I'd try to get a better sense of where she was at. I mean, mentally and in her understanding of her disease. 
I mean, she told me that she had just had a stressful conversation with her son. And I think pretty soon after that, I just jumped into the risks and benefits of blood thinners. Eh, you know, maybe I could approach that differently. Just really stressed that it's okay if she feels overwhelmed and that she doesn't need to make a decision today, but that this is a condition that really does need close follow-up. Yeah, and Nick, your experience with this patient was not unique. We know from large studies that compliance with DOAX for atrial fibrillation is low. It's like 50 to 60%. So like all of us have some work to do in communicating with our patients about the importance of anticoagulants in this situation. Yeah, Nick, I'm so glad you brought this case to Gray Matters. I think if everyone listening reflects a bit more on how to improve their AFib conversations, I think that's so meaningful and a huge win. So let's pause, see what I did there, and uh, recap some of the things we're taking away from the deep dives. Nick, you want to start us off? Definitely. In the first deep dive, we learned that when diagnosing AFib, you need either a 12-lead EKG or at least 30 seconds of AFib on telemetry. It's also important to note that increasing duration of AFib is correlated with an increasing stroke risk with about three buckets of patients, those whose AFib was less than six minutes, those who had an episode greater than six minutes, and those who had an episode greater of 18 hours or longer. In deep dive two, we learned to basically think of the stroke risk in patients who develop AFib after sepsis or non-cardiac surgery as being very similar to patients who develop atrial fibrillation in the community. The important different bucket is cardiac surgery patients. In deep dive three, we talked about timing of starting anticoagulation postoperatively, which depends on the bleeding risk associated with the surgery. You can also take a look at the chest guidelines for help, but also always talk with the surgeons regarding their input. In deep dive four, we talked about the utility of monitoring for recurrence of AFib to help decide if the patient should be on anticoagulation. It can be helpful if you do see AFib, but if you don't see AFib, it's hard to know if we can ever really be confident that the patient doesn't have any more AFib and doesn't need anticoagulation. Deep dive five, we saw there's so much nuance in discussing a new diagnosis that's hard to wrap your head around, like AFib. But one of my big takeaways was the importance of pausing to check for understanding. Nick, thank you so much again for answering our plea for someone to come join us. So it's not just Jason and me going off on tangents that potentially only we're interested in. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Happy to join the tangent train anytime. Yes, and listeners, if you have a case that you want to bring to Gray Matters, please let us know. If you found this episode helpful, please share with your team and colleagues and give it a rating on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast app you use. It really does help people find us. Yes, and if you do have a case you'd like to bring on air, please email us at hello at coreimpodcast.com. Thank you to Doc Shbatia for the audio editing. Opinions expressed are our own and do not represent the opinions of any affiliated institutions. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 